Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. What's going on, guys? Joe McCall here, the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. This is going to be a really good episode, and I'm excited about this. Something that I've never talked about before. This is a sensitive topic to some people. Some people probably don't even care, and some people it matters a lot, and some people it like doesn't, and I'm trying to figure it out for myself. Well, I had a friend connect me with another friend who is a pastor here in St. Louis. His name is Brent Rome. And he has a ministry doing some pretty cool, exciting things in the city. And so this friend of ours, mutual friend, said, hey, you guys should talk about this issue on your podcast. The issue, the topic is housing discrimination, right? And I think everybody could agree that, yeah, housing discrimination existed at one time, but does it still exist today? And if it does, like, What can I do about it, right? Is there anything I can do about it? Or should I even care? Or, you know, that was 50 years ago. What does it matter today? And I had a great conversation with our guest today a couple days ago and really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And I was open and honest with him. And I said, man, this would be really good to talk about on the podcast. And he was gracious enough to agree. And so we're going to bring him on here. And I just wanted to do a couple house cleaning things first, housekeeping things first. House cleaning. This might turn into a house cleaning. We'll see. (laughs) Anyway, housekeeping things first. We're going to be broadcasting this live in the Facebooks and YouTubes right now. So if you are watching this on Facebook and YouTube, please say hi, say hello, tell us where you're from, and type them in the comments. Give us a thumbs up, subscribe to the channel. I'd love to see your comments. And then if you have questions or if you have comments, keep them clean. And if they're good comments, I will show them on the on the screen here. And if you you probably have some good questions, and I would love to ask your questions to our guest Brent today as we go through this. All right. So um, let me think if there was anything else. Oh yeah, if you are listening to this in in podcast, whatever your podcasting app is, appreciate you very much. And I just ask that you would subscribe to the podcast. You know, no matter even if you listen to the podcast on my favorite podcast app is uh, Pocket Casts, but I'd still appreciate the subscribe over at Apple Podcasts because that's still the biggest podcast player. So subscribe and leave us a review. Let us know what you think. All right. So that's all the housekeeping I got. Let's see if we can bring over Brent. Brent Rome. Brent, are you there? Yeah, man. How are you? Good. How are you, Joe? Good. Good to meet you finally face to face. We've talked on the phone a little bit. You're in St. Louis and where do you live? In the University City area, right? Yeah. I live in U City. Yep. Describe what U City kind of what, what is it like there? Because I'm in the suburbs and it, kind of the nicer suburbs, I would say, but uh-huh. you're you're closer to the city. What's it like there where you yeah, live? It's, I mean, I love U-City. U-City is kind of right on the edge of the city, city-county divide. And so there's kind of an urban feel, you know, like I'm, I'm actually like, my office looks out on the Del Mar Loop. So I'm like looking out, there's a, like a, some kind of marijuana shop right there. There's a, a frozen yogurt shop right there. You know, there's sushi over there. But anyway, it's that kind of a vibe. I mean, it's and some really good coffee shops too, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And the sugar's right down the street, the blueprint, all those. Um, so it's got like, it's got a lot of flavor. It's got a lot of, it's a very eclectic feel. You know, there's just all different kinds of people, different nationalities, different walks of life. I love it, man. It's kind of on this, they call it the city-county divide in St. Louis, you know, and, and that's a big deal in St. Louis for your your St. Louis listeners will know. But it's also on the corner of what they call the Del Mar Divide. 
And the Del- Del Mar divide has some racial connotations because yeah. basically south of Del Mar is predominantly white and then north of Del Mar is predominantly uh, black. And so there's just a lot of, it's, it's just a crossroads of a lot of different people. And it's one of the things I love about it. We're going to talk about that. Where I live, just to give context to some folks about the, all the variety we have uh, for coffee is a Starbucks and McDonald's yeah. coffee, right? <laughs> and then <laughs> and then we've got Home Depot and Walmart and Lowe's and Target. Yeah. And, Bunch of box stores, national chain restaurants, Buffalo Wild Wings, uh, Olive Gardens. And uh, about the only time I go, and that's beautiful there. I used to go out into the city all the time when I was working on my MBA at SLU, St. Louis University. Like the only time we go out there is to go to a Cardinals game or something like that, right? Right. And I'm I'm just sharing this to the audience so you kind of get the context of where we're from. And and Brent, I want to ask you about your background a little bit. And then I'll share people a little bit more about my background. But go ahead. Okay. Where where are you from? And talk about how you got into what you're doing now. So I'm really, I am from St. Louis. My dad grew up in a, an area called Wellston, which is just north of your city. My grandfather's from St. Louis. So, you know, I, I'm like multi-generational here. My grandfather was a, a, a Pentecostal pastor, preacher, and so was my dad. And then, uh, so I decided for sure never to uh, go into the ministry was my goal in life. So uh, at like 18, 19, you know, I, I, I took a long, uh, long circuitous trip. I ended up studying overseas for a while, then ended up in Los Angeles for years. And then I started practicing law. And and then I ended up moving back to St. Louis, back to University City, probably about a mile from where my dad grew up. Wow. And um, long story short is I felt, you know, I was, I had for, for over a decade, I had tried to avoid becoming a pastor. You know, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. Like I finally had to give into it in, in a good way. You know, I had a, a deep sense of, of calling towards sure, it. Yeah. So anyway, you know, finally did it, left my law practice. And then we actually launched our, our church in the Tivoli Theater, which is right, uh, kind of right in the middle of the Del Mar Loop. It's a historic um, landmark. It's yeah, big time. And what's funny is my dad, when he grew up, he was a kid that they grew up like about a mile from here and they weren't allowed to go to movies in those days because it was old. They were old school, like super strict, you know? Yep. And um, so he would ride his bike down to the Tivoli and sneak into the Tivoli as a kid. <laughs> you know? And so now here it is all these years later. And is he still alive? He's not. He's not. But I, I mean, I, I wish he could. I wish, I mean, I wish he could see us today, man. I mean, it's, he would, his mind would be blown at this place where he snuck into as a teenager. No church. I'm sure he can see it. He knows. Yeah, yeah that's right. He knows. Um, All right. So what, if you don't mind me asking, like, where is your family from? Like, do you have any minority in in your, I'm sorry. Yeah. So we're like nine, apparently, you know, you do your DNA test. We're like 99, 90 something percent, like Irish, Scottish. Wow. Okay. But but I'm my, my, on my mother's side, we're also Cherokee. We're members of the the Cherokee nation. Um, And we didn't discover this. And I've actually never even said this publicly, but we did a series on race at our church recently. And then uh, my sister was doing some research after that series and discovered that in the 1870 census, my great, great, great grandma and her and her mother were deemed a mulatto in the census, which is means, it, it, you know, in, in 1870, that basically meant some some degree of African extraction plus whatever else. So nobody in our family has ever talked about that. Nobody has ever mentioned that. Like, I didn't know that. We talked to my mom and my uncle, you know, and they're like, we never heard that. But it's really fascinating because we went onto the census data and it actually looks like they were originally marked black and then scratched out and then 
mulatto. Wow. So I, I, I'm interested to learn more about that story because that's just something that we I learned like maybe three or four months ago. But that's kind of the kind of the ethnic mix of our family. Now, I, I, I'm going to guess you're in your 20s. Oh, and, uh, I love you. Oh. I love you, man. <laughs> so I got to play it safe. Yeah. I'm just playing it safe. Oh, no, man. I'm in my 40s, bro. Okay. All right. You see, I got even a little bit of sprig of white hair coming in. <laughs> so you grew up in St. Louis. What I was trying to go in with that was you grew up in St. Louis in the 80s. Right. Yeah. So what was it like in the 80s from a racial standpoint where you lived, which by where you were living back then, it was, was it pretty diverse or what was it like back then? We moved to Bridgeton, which is kind of North County. And it was a, in the, Bridgeton in the 80s was mostly white. And, you know, the, the, the busing, the DSEG program was happening. So the busing program was going on in that in those days. So I went to Pattonville and it was actually pretty, a pretty diverse school. Some African-American folks that went there, you know, like lived in that in that in the neighborhood. But there was also the DSEG program. So a lot of uh, black students were bussed in from the city. And so it was it was actually a pretty diverse place even growing up. When I when I was a real young kid, we moved to Ohio, a little town, Lancaster, Ohio, a little glass manufacturing, blue collar town, because my dad was a pastor there. That was like an almost all white town. So when we moved back to St. Louis, you know, it, it, it had a much more, you know, much more diverse feel than what I had been accustomed to when I was little in Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when you came here to pastor church, why the U city? Why not the wealthier, more faster growing areas uh, where most new churches are planted? You know, man, it's it's kind of a mix of two things. One is I just I felt like on a, on a purely emotional level, I just I mean I I mean I don't like want to over spiritualize this, but like I really felt like God was calling me to this area. Like this was where my this was where I was being drawn to in a very deep way. Like in a way that like five five or seven years before I moved, no, I think it was about five years uh, before I even moved. I can't remember how long it was, but years before I moved, I said. I, t- I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to end up back in University City. I'm going to be planting a church. You know, I'm going to, this is when I was in law school, like, or even before law school. And anyway, so there was this kind of real, just deep, I don't know what you would call that spiritual slash emotional draw there. There was another piece though, too, where I felt like there, at least for me, was a redemptive piece where this was an area where like Wellston U City was an area where you know, in the 60s, there was a big shift when the Fair Housing Act came out. Basically, a lot of white families and on my dad's side, you know, that, you know, they were all kind of like Irish, German kind of extract. But a lot of almost, a lot of white families basically moved out to the county, like in mass. And it really kind of, in a way, crushed the crushed some of the local municipalities here because like an entire tax base left. And, you know, from a real estate standpoint, like people just left and like the, the property values just fell apart. And why, why do you think they left? I mean, I think for me, there was, I mean, my, my sense of it is to a large extent, it had to do with race. It, it had to do with like, I think probably some fear and anxiety about, you know, this, you know, talking 1960s. So I think there was probably some significant fear about like, for white folks about like, what is it like to be like going to school with black folks? And, you know, I mean, up until that point, you had separate drinking fountains, separate neighborhoods, separate everything, you know, and now it's like, okay, wait, we're all supposed to mix together. And I do think there was a, a, I think there were a lot of people that were afraid of that. And like, now one of the things that I think helped you city 
this area where we are now is that a lot of white folks didn't leave U City and they just said, we're going to stay. And so black people moved into the neighborhood. One of my na- one of my neighbors in my neighborhood was the first black guy on the block. And, and he's a local historian. His name is Dr. Wright. He's freaking awesome if you ever look him up. But he was the first black guy to buy a, a, a piece of property on our, in our neighborhood. You know, and then a, another black family moved in who was a police detective, Mr. Anderson. And then a couple, you know, a couple other folks moved in and it kind of just stayed like that. That neighborhood stayed intact. But the neighborhoods where everybody left, tax base less, full schools fell apart, infrastructure fell apart. You know, like Wellston, man, it's, you know, it just fell apart completely where my dad grew up. So a lot of people listening to this. I'm, I'm sorry. I was just going to say a lot of people listening to this have heard of Ferguson. Yeah. And you're yeah. not, you're talking about an area not too far from Ferguson. And we're just a few miles south of Ferguson. Yeah. We're about four or five miles south of Ferguson. And, yeah. and Ferguson's not a bad area. It's actually no. nice. Yeah, man. It's, it's not people outside of St. Louis think that it's in the hood or it's in the really bad no. area. Beautiful. It's no, it's a great little nice area. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask about this. Why did people leave back then? Cause I, some people are going to think, well, weren't they leaving mainly because, you know, there was newer housing out there, bigger property, you know, bigger uh, backyards. You know, that was the trend of, of the er, the suburbanites, you know, suburban areas where you get newer homes, newer schools, bigger backyards, you know, more space between you and the neighbors. D- d- could that also have been a reason, too? Oh, yeah, man. Okay. I mean, I think absolutely. I, I don't know that those two things are separate because at the same time, you've got this new supply. And then you have an increased demand, it, you know, if you're seeing large exoduses in mass and, and it's all one, one ethnic group. Yeah. So you're in a, you're in an area of U city. It's, it's more progressive, I would say. Uh-huh. Right? Is that fair? I mean, not a bad, like <laughs> we, we want to keep politics out of this, Yeah, yeah. but progressive in a, not a liberal versus conservative way. It's pretty liberal, actually. So. It is. Okay. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but all right. I wanted to ask you, or I wanted you to retell the story, what you were telling me. You wanted to do some remodeling on your house. Mm. You're in U-City, which yeah. is a good area. Yeah. You wanted to do some remodeling, and you looked into the house in the Covenants or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So, so I read a book, I think it was like four or five years ago, called um, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. This book is like this friggin' thick. And it's like just very like detailed history of the way that real estate and race interacted from like the 20s till the till the present. I mean, it is a it is a it's like it's a very detailed historical book. Right. And the way the guy writes is very like kind of granular. I mean, he gets into the weeds. And and so I'm reading about St. Louis in the book because St. Louis comes up and and it's talking about all of these kind of racially restrictive covenants that that were imposed on St. Louis, these red line districts where like they call it that because they would literally take a red marker and line it out and say no loans in this section, like in black sections, you know, where black folks live. And there's all of these different, you know, he was documenting all of these different, you know, racially restrictive kind of covenants, restrictions, ordinances, codes, all this kind of stuff. So I live in your city. So I'm thinking, Huh. I wonder, because one of the premises of the book is like a lot of neighborhoods had these racially restrictive covenants. So I'm like, I wonder if our, if my house, my neighborhood does. So I emailed the librarian, you know, like right down the block. 
I'm like, hey, do you do you guys have any kind of the, the legal indentures for my neighborhood? They were my address. And so she said, oh, yeah, all the restrictions, all the restrictive covenants and all that are, are, are the, are the uh, indentures are over here. Send me a link. So I, I pulled mine up. I found it. Um, I found it online, right? So my these area, are deed restrictions, and they're still in place and valid today, oh, yeah. right? Oh yeah, this is still in place in my neighborhood. So this this is the indenture that governs my neighborhood, and so it was drafted in 1922. Well, so let's I, explain too. This this says you know you can't have a fence above this certain yeah. height. You can't, you can't have the gutters. Don't paint your doors purple. You know, don't put a fence in the front yard. You know, you can't have antennas. I don't know. You know, all that kind of stuff. Like all the stuff that you probably weren't going to do anyway. But you know, can't park your car on blocks and you know what I mean. Like so that kind of stuff. So it's got all of this kind of super boring stuff and I'm reading through it. And then I see on like in the middle of it, like it says there was a part where it says, I don't know if you can see that. You might not be able to see that, but it says words removed. Okay. Words removed. So I go down to the words removed and I find that the, there was a phrase, the words that were removed basically say, that this house, these houses in this neighborhood may not be used by, and then the words that were removed were Negroes or Malays. And so I had never even heard of the word Malays, but I looked it up and basically it was a, it was a term in the 1920s that meant like brown people, like Asian, kind of anybody brownish. So in basically the covenant, my covenant on my house in my neighborhood says no, no black people or brown people can live here. Wow. Right now that, that part of, of my of my indenture was deleted. The words were removed. And I'm like, when were they removed? I'll just show you this real quick because it's just so freaking crazy. The words were in blue were removed in 1993. 1993. I'm like, wait, the the restrictive covenant that says no black or brown people can live in this neighborhood, that you like that wasn't taken out of this covenant until 1993. Wow. So now it wasn't enforceable. Yeah. From a legal standpoint, after 1964, because of the um, well, what, what happened in 64? The Fair Housing Act, I think, came out in 64, and it said, "Hey, none of that stuff is enforceable anymore. Like, you can't tell black people they can't live in your neighborhood." Okay, so that was like a federal, you know, act that came out in 64. So technically, that would not have been enforceable if somebody took it to court. But they didn't. It wasn't stricken from my, you know, my house until 1993 and like this is where this is like where i live my children live here and my family lives here and i'm like man so that really i, I think that that piece of it for me joe i just started really thinking deeply and you know and it struck me also from a spiritual standpoint you know like a justice standpoint like i just started going man, man that just I, I hadn't seen it that close you know you, you think you kind of hear about it in the past in the abstract and you go wait a minute my house, my house, on uh, you know, was restricted. No black people, brown people could live in my house, huh. you know. And then, and that code was there until 1993. And I just so that's what kind of got me, you know, researching this stuff a little bit more and diving a little bit deeper in. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one of the things we were talking about, and this is these are things I've wrestled with, right? Because we all understand and agree that housing discrimination is wrong. But somebody might say, "Listen, like we passed that law in the 60s." Okay, we're past that. Yeah. Why does it still matter today? And like, what you know? Yeah. So what if it yeah. was in the restrictions? And people were they were idiots back in the twenties, right? Like, so how does it still affect people today? Okay, I, I, and I, I think that's a great question because I mean I think most of us think about ourselves in the present tense, 
Sure. You know, we kind of see ourselves in a snapshot, like we're right here, right? But when I think about 1964, what I think about is, okay, that's my parents and that's your parents. Yeah. In fact, that's almost everybody that I know's parents were, bo- were born before 1964, you know, and lived through that period. That means every black person that I know, every black person that goes to our church, either they or their mom and dad were not allowed to live in my neighborhood, which means they could not accrue equity in a home, generational wealth, uh, access to, you know, nice schools out in, you know, West County. I mean, now we all know, man, like, like there have been people of color and, you know, who have like grinded it out, figured it out, gotten out, you know, Nellie owns, is it Nellie or 50? I owns a house in Wildwood. It's been in the news lately too. Oh, has it? Yeah, it's like a big $2 million house, and now it's only worth like 500000 But um, Oh, jeez. But anyway. I'd still take it. Bad example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, but we know, we know, like, yeah. they're, they're, but, but, but when you think about it, like, as a, as a, in, in a large group, and you think about every black person you know, mom and dad were prohibited from the benefit of owning a home in a nice neighborhood, which means they were prohibited from owning, uh, from building generational wealth and the kind of equity that you can build in a home and, like, having access to a good school district and all of that stuff. Like every black person, you know, his mom, his or her mom and dad were subjected to this. And so, so, so even though 1964, yeah, okay, we're not done with that. Part of it for me, as I look at it is, you know, you've got from 1619 to 1964, you've got either slavery or Jim Crow laws or racially restricted covenant. You got, you got something blocking, blocking the way, blocking the path. Stealing. And so then the rules changed in 1964. Thank God. Like, you know, like, okay, we're going to go fair and square here. Right. But the consequences, like the long term consequences for an entire population for that kind of you know, like o- oppressive you know, covenants and restrictions, the, that the, the, the long term consequences of that, I think, are the thing that we see now. It didn't just go away then, is what you're saying. It just didn't. It's kind of like, yeah, like the analogy is like a football game, you know, or, or like what's your like what's your sport, Joe? What do you what do you like? Are you uh, baseball, baseball, baseball. Okay, so ba- two baseball teams, right? And one's you know one's a let's call it an orange team, and one's a green team, right? And every time the green team comes up the bat, the ump calls strikes when it falls. Anytime they hit a, a, a hit or a home run or whatever, it's called back. You can't, they don't allow them to score. And then the, the orange team is allowed, you know, if they score every time they score, they're allowed to score. They get on base, whatever. You know, it, it's, the, it's the seventh inning. Now, orange went in 20, 28 to zero, right? Pumps come out at seventh inning and go, you know what, guys, we screwed this up. We shouldn't do this. We're going to play by the rules. Everybody, fair and square, right? We're going to play by the rules now. Well, you know, it's seventh inning. 20, 28 to zero or whatever, right? Half the green team is like, screw this. They, they checked out in the fourth inning because it's like, this sucks. The ones that are left are tired, you know? And so you got a couple, few more innings to try to, you know, score. But the, but the thing has been weighted against you for so long as a team, as a group, that, you know, without some intervention, you know, you, you know you're going you're gonna to get some scores. You're going to get on base, Right. But you're not going to catch up. You're not going to get 28 runs, and you're not going to slow down the other team anyway. I mean, and so I, I kind of see it in that light. Like this, the the impact, the consequences, and the effects of these laws 
on our current situation is like that. Like we stopped the we stopped the steal we stopped the steal, right? We stopped the injustice in the sense that we 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 passed laws as a as a country that said you can't do this anymore. But the consequences of what we've been doing are just still like all you got to do is just look in any black neighborhood and you know and in any city you know in any predominantly black neighborhood and you know higher crime rates higher incarceration drug use despair depression whatever name it crime you know the impact the effects of what of of these kinds of policies that got stopped you know in your mom and dad's and my mom and dad's age the the long-term consequences of those is you know we're still feeling that we're still seeing that even though we'd like technically stopped the. Yeah. Stopped. And it, it's, it's crazy to think it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that weird thing. man. It, it and even was. if they could buy a neighborhood would let them in, was it really that hard to get a mortgage? Like, no. So like the more, so mortgage lenders were also permitted to not issue mortgages to black people. In fact, in many cases they were their their company's policy was to refuse any, anybody. So there would sometimes be like a white person who would get the mortgage for the black person and they would try to work it out that way. But then if they had a racially restricted covenant in the neighborhood, then that the neighborhood would sue and, and then the black person would be kicked out anyway. When black people were allowed to buy, this is really interesting, when black people were allowed to buy in neighborhoods, what, what some of the studies have shown is that the property values would go up because a black, black person would willing to pay more to get into than a person because it was so limited they had such so limit so many so few options that if they did find a neighborhood that would allow them in they're going to pay top dollar to get in and which would bring up the property values of the other houses around them okay so you started a ministry to it's not even a, would you call it a ministry to i mean to it's technically a secular nonprofit you know yeah. I'm a I'm a I'm a preacher pastor, so I can't like everything for me is steeped in the in the sure, spiritual yeah. part. Of it. But it's um you know yeah it's it's really a I would call it like a justice organization. You know I, I can well, you know you can call it ministry. I, I want to talk about it real quick, and then I want to talk about some other things. But it, it's a the website. I want you all to go to it. It's called thefamstl.com. Thefamstl.com. I'm going to add it in here to the banner and make sure I spelled it right. Yep. T-H-E-F-A-M-S-T-L. Is that it right there? Yeah, that's it. Perfect. Yeah. The FAM STL and the website says your goal is to eliminate race as a factor in home ownership throughout St. Louis in one generation. Yeah. All right. So eliminating race as a factor in home ownership yeah. in one generation. Would you say it's still a factor today? Yeah, it's a factor. Like it's a factor if you look at you know, all you have to do is look at like the, the percentage of white folks that have how, own homes and the percentage of black folks that have homes. And you go, you know, there's a massive disparity. Right. And you're left with the question, why is that disparity? You know, and then you've got to you got to ask some really tough questions. Right. Is it because somehow black people are inherently worse at buying homes or don't work as hard or don't you know care as much? Is there something inherently or implicit about being black? You know? Or is there something, was there something that is, that has been imposed on us, or, you know, that has caused it to be this way? You know what I mean? Um, so it's still a factor in the sense that like in every respect, like blacks have lo- lower as a, as a, you know, statistically just lower income, higher crime rates, higher incarceration, all of that. Right. So race plays a factor in all of that. 
I want to uh, share my screen here. And I, those of you listening to the audio, you, I will kind of read this out loud as well here. Um, it's this one, isn't it? This is the fam.s or the famstl.com. And this is the homepage. This is the data. I want to talk about the data here. Can you see okay. my screen okay? Looks good there. I think. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm pulling it up on mine too. All right. I can see um, it children born into African American households will experience, on average, higher rates of poverty, higher likelihood to be victims of crime, fewer educational opportunities, lower incomes, greater rates of incarceration, higher rates of drug alcohol addiction, lower high school and college graduation rates, and a shorter life expectancy than their white counterparts. This is crazy to me. The median wealth of white households in the United States is $171,000 a year, which is 10 times the median wealth of black households, which is 17,000. One in four black households have zero or negative worth, net worth, net worth, sorry, uh, compared to less than one in 10 white families. And you share, you compared here two zip codes. And when I first thought I saw this, I thought, is that fair? But explain, I think it is, and explain this a little bit. These are two zip codes that are right next to each other, right? Uh -huh. 63105 and 63106. Yep. The difference in the racial makeup, it's about 78% white in the uh, more expensive zip code, and it's 2% white in the, in the city yep. zip code. Yeah. 4% unemployment in Clayton yeah. and 24% un unemployment in, in Jeff Vanderloo. All yeah. right. 7% live below the poverty line in Clayton. 54% live under the poverty line in the other zip code. 90%, I mean, sorry, $90,000 median household income over there. $15,000 median household income over there. Life expectancy, 85 yeah. over here, 67 over there. Yeah. And then it, this goes into more of the... Uh, the causes of the problem. I want people to just, I want people to go here and look at this. This is, yeah. it'll disturb you in, in a, in a good way. And it'll make some of you very uncomfortable. Like, and I'll be honest, it made me uncomfortable. Like, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Like, okay, well, what can I do about it? Right? Like, well, am I supposed to feel guilty? And, and, you know, the whole thing of white guilt, we're going to talk about that. And so uh, Brent had some really good things that he shared with me, um, later, but look at this guys, 98% of home loans, 98% of home loans in the white families from 1934 to 1962, 98% of all home loans went to white families from 1934 to 1962. So the, this, this goes on. And, and, and I like this too. In other words, the upward and downward wealth trends set in motion by decades of state sponsored discrimination policies will not reverse themselves. They will continue to move in their respective directions until they are systematically halted and reversed with the same degree of intentionality with which they were originally set in motion. So I, I want to talk to you about the solution, Brent, and, and yeah. I mean, what can we do about this? It seems overwhelming. If, if you first can recognize that it is a problem, yeah. like, oh my God, gosh, now what? What, what do we yeah. do about it? Yeah. What do, you, what yeah. do you say to that? So my gut on it is this. Every other, every factor that you can think of that demonstrates either a, a, a good life outcome or a bad life outcome. Almost every one of those factors is tied to where you live in the United States. That, as that map, as that little illustration shows, like where I live is going to impact the level of education that I can get, the level of the kind of groceries I can buy, the how safe my neighborhood is, you know, like literally every, you know, everything, right? The, 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 not, the amount of drug addiction in my neighborhood, the amount of crime in my neighborhood, the amount of gangs in my neighborhood. So where I live impacts everything. So my, my, 
the intuition that 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 me and the, the other folks that kind of got this thing going is that if that is the one factor, your home, where you live, that that impacts so many other factors. And for most Americans, this is your main, you know, I, I guess you would call it an asset. Like the main, the, the this is your home is not only a place where you live and sleep, but it's it's like the best, it's like the best investment that you ever get to make for your for your average family, right? Yeah. So like if and if the problem started as a result of this, the ha- with the housing, because I think. You know, and I'm not like a, I'm not like a researcher, you know, so like but the people who have looked at this have said like even even uh, like where you live, it, it kind of created it basically created ghettos, you know, because the, the more you put poor people together and then prevent them from rising up, then you are going to have increased crime and drug use and despair, all that stuff, you know. So anyway, so the, so the intuition is, OK, if we could actually provide opportunities for people whose moms and dads were prevented from experiencing some of the things that that you and I know that to be like really valuable home ownership and everything that goes with it then perhaps the solution is baked into that into into that very same dynamic so what if we find a way to provide home ownership opportunities for african american families and individuals in st louis to give them an opportunity to live in a neighborhood that where where their kids have a have a shot at a competitive school district you know it's safe. There aren't, there aren't guns and bullets flying around. You know, it, we don't. We're, we're not even. We're not shooting for Ledoux and Clayton right now. You know, we're we're like. You know, but but what if our what if our clientele was able to to move into a place that was safe and good and healthy and um and that would give them a better shot. So that's that's why we ended up with this model of basically saying, you know, this is this is what caused the problem. Maybe this is where the solution lies. Also is to provide opportunities to the best of our ability, to provide opportunities for people who are working, making money, but who, who are behind because the generation before them were way behind and the generation before them were just shattered. But, you know, because I, I mean, I just know so many people, African-American folks who working hard, working two jobs, but they're digging out from generations of, of bad stuff happening. And so like, you know, they've got, tons of student loans, you know, working hard, but, you know, renting and not just not getting ahead. And so our, our thought was like, what if we, what if we put together an organization that could help people buy homes and start, start building wealth, start creating generational wealth, start building equity, start having some, you know, being able to map out a path for their life. So that's how we ended up on this. So what does that look like? What do you guys do for them? So this is, this is where it gets really interesting because each family is so different. Some of the families that we're working with have great income, but they have really bad credit and, you know, and debt. So we are working to design ways to increase their uh, increase their credit score and get rid of some of the predatory debt. We got we got folks in our uh, clientele that have predatory loans that are in the 20s and 30s percent. You know, it's just like, what in the world? You know, but, you know. A lot of our clients are like they are they are they are first generation that might be first generation high school, first generation college, you know, and and kind of merging without a lot of help from the prior generation. Um, So we're kind of custom, you know, customizing the solution for each client and, you know, working with different lending institutions to kind of, you know, um, bring in some of the programs that they have working with them. 
increasing debt uh, or decreasing debt, increasing your, um, your, your credit score, doing some personal finance training, budgeting training, some education around those issues, providing other kinds of support. There's legal support needed, wraparound services, you know, and, and basically customizing this for each, for each family. This has been our, you know, we kicked this off recently. So this year is, you know, we're, we're working with each family individually and we're learning, we're finding out what we, what we don't know a lot of, in a lot of ways. We're like, oh, okay, yeah, didn't expect that. All right, let's address that. Fortunately, we've got tons of people in the, in the community around us that are, either, you know, finance people, real estate people, lawyers, you know, all these different mental health counselors, like all these different people that are also willing to jump in and be a part because it does take all of that to kind of move, move the ball forward. One of the things I want to ask you is um, how can real estate investors actually help you with this? And um, first, I want to I want to talk about something here. Like like with any podcast, most of the audience is like the host. Right. So most of my audience are they're white like me. They're suburban dads and, you know, suburban moms. I grew up pretty poor. I didn't know I was poor. My dad was a a hard worker. He was a janitor. I grew up. I was in a trailer park, grew up in a trailer park. My dad worked at McDonald's for a long time and then became a janitor and then kind of started his own business. I didn't know I was poor until, you know, actually I started really thinking about it like 20 years ago when I was in my uh, 20s. And like, oh man, I guess I was poor back then. But like, um, I didn't have, none of my family went to college. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm speaking to what I know some of the other people, these are things that I've thought myself. And I know a lot of other people are thinking this, like, you know, yeah, I understand there's discrimination, but like, hey, I didn't have it easy either, right? Like, we grew up poor, we didn't have much to, you know, I, I had to pay my way through college. I had to go get a job and work my way. And, you know, so I graduated from college. So talk to the person. You brought up a really yeah. good analogy. Yeah. And the other thing I want to bring up here is uh, the whole, the white guilt thing, right? Because like sometimes guys like me, the white, the white, the white I lost guilt, you just for a second. I'm sorry, the uh, white yeah, guilt. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. some people now get on the defensive all of a sudden and think, wait, wait, yeah. you know, you want me to just apologize? I didn't have anything to do with that back then. And now, you know, if you listen to, you know, NPR or something like that, yeah. you, you get these, these white people that are, you know, telling it that all the other white people, you need to feel bad yeah. and you need to, you know, so then there's like, well, wait a minute. Like it, it's a big dis- mess right now, especially yeah. politically and what's yeah. going on with the politics. And there's a yeah. huge divide. And it's, you know, it's, it's sad. And, and I really, I'm hoping that this podcast maybe does a little bit yeah. of, of introspection yeah. to white folks like yeah. me. And so you brought up a really good analogy of the Good Samaritan, right? Yeah. Like, what was that? Talk about that. So, yeah. So, you know, I think shame and guilt and condemnation, all that stuff, honestly, man, I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's useful. It doesn't get you anywhere. It's not, it's, it's, um, it, I think it can be count. I honestly think it can be counterproductive because if you've done enough mea culpas, you know, right. Then, then you've like, you're absolved, right? Like, okay, well, I already said, I'm sorry. So, so I'm not, I, I honestly, man, like that stuff, I just can't, I can't, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's helpful. The, the story of the, of, of the good Samaritan is what, is what strikes me from a faith standpoint, because the story of good Samaritan, you know, your listeners probably know this story, but, a, a, a man is a Jewish guy is like is is been beaten and left for dead at the side of the road. And then, um, you know, a, a priest comes by, sees the guy, goes to the other side of the road, keeps on going. A Levite, another kind of re- religious pastor, basically comes by, sees the guy, goes to the other side of the road, keeps on going. A Samaritan, somebody who doesn't share this guy's faith, 
doesn't share his ethnicity, doesn't share his language, whatever. Totally a minority. A minor, minority, yeah, exactly, right? Comes over and not only helps the guy, heals the guy, you know, puts him, puts the oil on him, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an, an inn and pays the innkeeper and says, hey, you know, take care of this guy. And if, if, he, if I owe you anything else because he has to stay longer, I'll come back, I'll pay you for the rest of it. Never does he say, not my fault. He doesn't. My, he, ne- he never said it wasn't. It's not my responsibility. Not my responsibility. He never says that. He says, "I see a guy who's been injured. I see a guy who's been harmed. I see a guy who's been hurt, and I have compassion. I am moved with compassion because I see that an injustice was done. Um, I'm not. I don't feel guilty about the injustice. I didn't do the injustice. You know, the Good Samaritan didn't beat the guy, but I'm going to do something about it because I can, and because it's the right thing to do. And so I, I, th- I think of it like this." responsibility, irrespective of culpability, right? So the Good Samaritan is not culpable. He didn't do anything to put the Jewish guy on the side of the road, beaten up and bleeding. Irrespective of no culpability, he says, I'm going to take responsibility because it's the right thing to do. Because I've seen an injustice and I want to address the injustice. And, and, and that, that analogy, that metaphor translates for me into this situation. Anybody of goodwill I don't care what your political background or your ethnicity or whatever is. Anybody, you know, with their eyes open says, hey, man, there's been 350 years of brutal injustice against a group of people. And that that injustice legally ended with your mom and dad and my mom and dad. The long term consequences of that, like when, when, when the prodigal or when the, not the prodigal, when the uh, Good Samaritan came up, the, he, the guy was no longer being beaten. So the the injustice was had been stopped. Yeah. Right. But the, the healing hadn't happened. And so this is kind of like, all right, let's 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 bring a salve to this. Let's see if we can make the guy whole again. You know, I, I, I love that analogy, too, because like nobody asked the Good Samaritan to feel any guilt, you know, to to take any responsibility in terms of like, oh, this is my fault. He right. just took he just did what he could to, to fix it Yeah, because he had compassion. And I was yeah. reading that Bible verse yesterday morning after we talked. Yeah. And that verse just struck me because he had compassion. And that's so much like what God does for us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this this compassion basically means I feel you. I feel your suffering, you know, and as you're describing your background, Joe, and I'm thinking like, you know, I'm I'm, I'm thinking of your dad, like working his butt off and like, you know, grinding it out to to give you guys a, a good life, you know. And I'm thinking my 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 story is very very similar, man. My my grandpa had an eighth grade education. Both of my grandpas eighth grade education. He, my grandpa was a bus mechanic in St. Louis, and he he actually he actually worked for the Three C's, which was a, a welfare organization that allowed guys that were dirt poor to go build bridges, and they would send the money back to their parents, you know. And fortunately, he had opportunities. He could buy a house. He was able. He was. He was permitted. He was legally permitted to do that. So he did that and he started to get ahead and you know, he ended up being like a middle class guy, you know, out in Bridgeton, like living in, you know, off of Mark Twain Lane, you know, which is nice. And so, you know, we see that when when somebody's given a shot, when people have an opportunity, when they can see a path, you know, if you've got any if you've got any guts and chutzpah, you're going to get out there, you're going to grind, you're going to work. I, and and for me, it's like I want to ha- I, I want to help a path. For people who maybe they don't see the path yet, you know, not because I feel guilty or ashamed or anything like that or condemned. It's because, hey, man, there was a problem. There was an injustice. That's why I talk when I talk about this organization. I don't, it's not a charity organization. It's a justice organization. Yeah. You know, we're trying to we're trying to address a wrong yeah. that hasn't been addressed. 
you know, this is really good. And, and again, I got want to encourage you guys to go to the famstl.com. Brent, talk a little bit about just real quick about what, what can we do? Like, yeah. um, I like the question about the real estate investor thing, because one of the models that we are looking at is so some of the lending institutions are willing to give a, they're willing to take a risk on some of our clients. And then our organization, the fam, we're willing to subsidize that risk. Right. So so let's say that let's say that Bank A says we're going to give you a 90, 90 percent loan or an 80 percent loan. And the fam says we'll give you a 20 percent loan. And now we can get this family situated, surrounded with some support. Now they're homeowners. They're paying, they're paying their mortgage, right? One of the things that we are willing to do, and we're beginning to explore this, is we'd be willing to sell our loan at a discount. We're, we're an organization that is a nonprofit. We're not trying to make money. Nobody in our organization is paid. Zero dollars. We have no overhead. Everything that we do is, is at our towards our you know, towards, I think we've, I think we've spent like less than $2,000, like on a website, you know, a couple things like that. But, but, but one of the models is, would there be investors out there that would be interested because they're, they're passionate about this or they care about this and taking, taking some of uh, the loans, our loans, and we, you know, we sell the loan and we take a loss and it's, you know, and then that investor would actually own a second mortgage on, that house or whatever, you know, so yeah. those are some models that we're beginning to explore. You're smarter than me on all this, Joe, man. I, I mean, you know, I, I, if something like that worked, if you, if you had listeners that said, you know, I kind of dig what they're doing. I don't want to get, I don't, maybe I'm not in a position to give a big chunk of money to the organization right now, but I would, I would feel pretty good about holding a mortgage on a house yeah. of a family that's trying to make it. And, you know, and it's not going to, you know, you're not going to get a massive return, but you could get a, you could get some interest, and you could be helping somebody out and being a part of something cool, you know. There's, a, I just interviewed a friend of mine earlier today. His name is Adam Zach, and he has a company called Set Your Rent. Set Your Rent. Okay. And uh, what he does is he helps people that a lot of small business owners who can't get a loan right now. Uh, he, if they have enough money to put down, ten percent, he will actually go pick buy a house for them. Wow. He's got the investors that will buy the house and then either lease option it back to the tenant, give them a couple, three, four years to buy it. And so if anybody listening to this, I'd encourage you to go back to listen to that. Adam Zach was his name on my okay. podcast and he has a website, set your rent. He's just, he's only done like 24, 25 of these deals and he's in North Dakota, I think North Dakota. But yeah, there's a, uh, you know, a lot of my audience is familiar with rent to own lease options. I just want to talk about this real quick. Yeah, um, yeah. Rent to own is, is a great strategy, but it's also been abused yeah. in the lower uh, minority community in the lower, cheaper neighborhoods, lower end, yeah. uh, cheaper neighborhoods, right? So can you talk about the the, the whole, the, the, all of that that's going on? Because it, it sometimes gets a bad rap on, yeah. and, 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 and justifiably so in a lot of ways, right? But like there is a good way and a right way to do those kinds of things, right? Yeah. You know, one of the, I'll talk just for a minute about the kind of one of the abusive ways that it was done before. They were called land contracts yeah. and, you know, they were, they were so onerous that like you ended up in a much worse financial position if you got into one of these than you would otherwise. Um, because if, and if there was any little T not crossed or dot I not dotted, then you would end up losing your house altogether. And, and a lot of black families, actually, that was the only way that they could buy a home yeah. at, you know, because of the covenants and restrictions and all that. And so anyway, that made it even worse. I have seen uh, situations too, where, a lease to own 
is a kind of, I don't know if it's a bait and switch, but it's, uh, it can be a, you know, you know, kind of holding it out there. It's like this carrot out here, like you could own this, but the terms are so bad that at the end of the day, like it just, it doesn't make sense. And they actually end up not owning it anyway. So, yeah. yeah. So there's a, what, what is the, the right way to do it though? The lease to own or the rent yeah. to own? Man, I mean, that's another model that we're, that we're, that we're looking at for us because it would require like no down payment for our client and they would be able to pay rent. And then we would be able, we would, we would either, we would either uh, take the loss because again, our, our organization is okay taking a loss on each family. Like we're willing to spend money on each family. That's Mm. part of what we're doing. So I think one way we could do it would be like the rent that, that, that has been accrued over X percentage of time. We could end up rolling that into the, uh, you know, into the total, total nut. And then, and and now they've already got equity immediately. There's a lot of investors that um, are, are rehabbing houses. They're buying houses in good solid areas Yeah, and they're wanting to maybe rent it, maybe sell it. They don't know. Are you looking for investors that could maybe bring you deals, not necessarily give them away and donate them, but like bring you good solid houses that might be a good fit for one of these families? You know, that would be huge. One of the one of the things that we one of the guys that we're working with is, is a guy named Brandon Wilkes in St. Louis. And he's he's also a pastor and he also has a passion for this. And and he's also a uh, he also is great at construction. So one of the things that he's been doing with some of his folks is he'll, he, he and his wife will buy the house. They will rehab the house. They'll you know basically make the house worth, you know, let's say the house is worth one hundred thousand dollars after the rehab. They will sell the house. Because they bought it for fifty, they put twenty five in. They'll sell the house for eighty five. They'll make ten thousand. The home, the they're they're not trying to make that. They're trying to do what we're doing. And the family that moves in will have twenty uh, twenty thousand dollars in equity the day they they walk in the door. Nice. Um, so that's a pretty that's a pretty sweet model. Also, will will he sell it with owner financing or lease option or yeah. how is he selling it? Yeah, I think they are holding the note on some of those. Okay, yeah. And I love that too. In a lot of ways, it's a bigger win-win if you have a property and you're selling. If you can sell it on a long-term owner financing, yeah. right, with none of the shenanigans of, of subprime loans, you know, that's a great way to sell properties. And instead of being the landlord, you could be the bank. Yes, but that's that. Joe is our that, that was the original idea. Yeah, for the fam, and we want to build it to there because that also makes the fam long-term sustainable where we're not always coming out and asking for donations and grants and all that. Because if we hold the note on enough properties, even if we have very low interest rates, then there's a constant source source of revenue for the fam, which then we can use to buy more houses. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I think there's somebody, there's got to be somebody listening here to this podcast who can think of some good creative ways to help a ministry, uh, uh, an organization like this, even if it's not in St. Louis, it's maybe in your own market. This is something that you guys should really look at. And we're coming up to an hour already. Crazy. But Brent, the main website is thefamstl.com. Is it okay if I give your church website out also? Yeah, man, for sure. All right. All right. I already got it up here anyway. Oh. I'm going to show it anyway. Onefamilychurch.com. Yeah. You've got two locations, one in the yeah. Shaw neighborhood, one in the Delmar Loop. So the Shaw campus, we physically reopen in two weeks, March 14th. Wow. Okay. So we are online. Everything is online now. Both campuses reopen on Easter Sunday, and then both campuses will be back in person 
starting Easter Sunday, you know, going forward. We're what we call fully digital, which means we're fully physical, be in person, and fully digital. All our ministries are offered, you know, both ways. Uh, you, you were breaking up a little bit. It's a cool play on words, physical yeah. and digital. Fig- yeah. Digital? Digital. Digital, okay. Yeah, fully digital. Yeah. Uh, this is good, man. This is really good. Uh, Brent, we could talk a long time. I'm just looking at my notes here to make sure I don't have any other... Oh, one one thing too that was really good. You, you talked about like being willing to embrace imperfect solutions. Yeah. Talk about that real quick because I thought that yeah. was good. And, so, and then you talked about... What are the consequences of not taking care of this problem? Remember that we were talking about that. Yeah. So I think the the you know one of the one of the one of the um, one of the things that people get nervous about is they go well, like what can I do right? And when you start to try to figure out what to do, a lot of times we go well that's not a perfect solution. Yeah. yeah. Um, my mind is in my mind is like okay there is no perfect solution. The perfect solution would be to undo the oppression and discrimination of the past and start over and not do all of that, okay? We can't do that. It's wildly imperfect, though, to say, can't do anything. Screw it. Good luck. You know, hope it worked out, right? If there's an injustice, it's kind of like this. I got four kids. If one of my children, if I find out that my oldest son was stealing a dollar from my youngest son every day for a month, at the end of the month, I go, son, what are you doing? Stop stealing your brother's money. And he goes, okay, I'm going to stop stealing my, my brother's money. And, he go, and I go, well, where's the money? I want you to give it back. And he goes, well, I spent it, right? That means we have an imperfect, so we, we got to come up with an imperfect solution. But it wouldn't be appropriate for me to just say, okay, well, if you already spent it, then there's no, nothing you can do, right? I got, I've got to, I've got to come up with a way to address the injustice that was done to my youngest son, by my oldest son, right? So it's the same with this. We can't, we can't not do something just because it's not perfect. There is no perfect. And just because I didn't cause the problem. Right. right? Also, that, that, that's not an excuse. Excuse me. That's not an excuse to say there's nothing I can do about it. Right. Right. I mean, you certainly can if you want, right? But if you want to be, you know, let's just talk about God here a little bit. If you want God's blessing in your life, then you need to be a little more charitable. You need to have a little bit more compassion yeah. and you need to be a little more generous, yeah. maybe your time, your resources, your treasures, your talents and all of that stuff. And, and I think that this is so important for people to hear. Yeah. If we want God's blessing as a nation, as yeah. a city, yeah. you know, yeah. this is something that we can't ignore. Right. That This is something we cannot ignore. And yeah. if we want God's blessing, this is, I think, the only way that we can do it. And, and because it's because Isaiah 58. Yeah. You know, Isaiah 58, God says, what kind of, you know, it's fasting. Like we're in Lent right now, you know, for a lot of people. What kind of fasting do you want? You know, what kind of fasting pleases me, God says. And he goes, Address, you know, take care of the, the, the oppressed. Lift the, lift the hand of oppression off of people. Free people, lean in, help people, serve people, take care of people. And then the, the light will break through on you. Uh, your fountains will be full. I mean, it's, it's like this picture of like what we become when we're willing to love each other and care for each other. And look after each other, not because like, ah, I'm guilty. I'm ashamed. I did it. You know, none of that. It's because when we see something that is not right, that is not the way God would have wanted it to go. And we have the power to do something about it. It brings it brings as much benefit to us as to the person we're serving. 
I mean, my life expands. That is so good what you just said. Yeah, man. My life expands when I pour out for somebody else. My life, it just, it creates room for my life to be filled up more. And so I just get more blessing out of doing the giving and and giving the compassion. You actually get more blessing out of it than you're actually giving to the other person. That's right. That's right. That's right. They benefit. You benefit. (laughs) That's much not more. Yeah. You know, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I mean, that's the scripture, right? It it just is. Yeah. It just is. One of of my favorite books of all time is um, Robert Morris's book, The Blessed Life. Yeah. And I love that book. And um, it's exciting. You get to give. So anyway, appreciate you being on my podcast, Brent, uh, thefamstl.com, T-H-E-F-A-M-S-T-L.com. Go check it out, guys. There's some information about things, ways that you can help, even donate some money if you want. But I think more than that, it's just like like how getting educated uh, and recognizing that this problem does exist and we can't just ignore it. We need to be... We need to have some compassion. Yeah. And I think that's so critical. The famstl.com and your church website. And you have a lot of online sermons as well. Yeah. People yeah. can go see your videos. Yeah. Onefamilychurch.com. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah. Brian. Hey, thank you, man. This has been like a joy for me. And I, I'm going to start listening to your podcast. Oh. Getting educated on real estate, brother. This is oh. awesome. Well, good. I thank you very much. Maybe we should play some golf sometime. I'm down for that. I'm a terrible golfer, so we can play best ball, but I like it. I'm just bad at it. Do you like golf? Do you have clubs? I don't have clubs. I'm left-handed. My wife just gave my clubs away, but I'll rent some. <laughs> you better ask your wife if you can play. She said, no, she said, she said, these are collecting cobwebs. You know, you don't use these, and so she gave away to the good book. So. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Brent. We'll see you guys later. Thanks, Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.